Proverbs 29, verse 25 says this. The fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. God's word has a lot to say about the fear of man, the fear of people, doesn't it? Do you fear anyone, I wonder? Is there someone that you can think of that you go, I'm just afraid of them? Or is there something that causes you to fear people in some way? I can't help but think that every one of us here struggles with the fear of man in some way or another. It's human nature, isn't it? It's, it's, and it's one of those things where God's Word talks about it all the time and teaches us about it, and we either just kind of ignore what it says, or we think, it's just it's too hard to deal with my fear of man, so I'll just continue afraid. And we put up with the fear. That's how I feel about it, at least. Well, if there was ever a man who did not fear men, or fear people, or at least he pushed past the fear... It was Nehemiah, right? Last week in chapters 1 and 2, we met Nehemiah. You might have a look there now. Uh, Who is Nehemiah? He's the highest-ranking Jew in the whole Persian Empire. He's the cupbearer's king. He's far away in the city of Susa, and he gets this terrible news. Jerusalem's walls are broken down. His people, his country, they are defenseless. So what does Nehemiah do? He plucks up the courage, or he prays first. And then he plucks up the courage, he pushes past the fear of his king and says, King, may I go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and remove the disgrace of God's people. God's gracious gracious hand is at work and so the king says yes and he gives Nehemiah everything he needs to go and finish the work. And so chapter 2 we saw last week, Nehemiah heads home and he becomes the governor of Jerusalem. And he says to the people of Judah, God's people, this is the work that needs to be done. The walls need to be rebuilt for God's city, for Jerusalem. And being the persuasive and the political man that he is, Nehemiah, everyone says, we agree. Let's get on with the work. Let's rebuild the wall. Well, then we get chapter 3, which we haven't read out loud. uh, But if you look there, what do you see? Well, you see it's a record of the work that was done on the wall. Who did what section? Why is it here? Well, it's meant to show that Judah got the work done and that they worked hard. They were planned, intentional, disciplined, faithful. They chose sections of the wall and then allotted families to each section to do the work so all of it could be done. And this chapter honors those who did the work. Here are the people, the families, who did this work and got the job done. And the whole job, the whole job is getting done. Because look, the whole wall is accounted for. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, they're working on the sheep gate. And then it lists all these other gates. And then if you look all the way down at verse 32 of chapter 3, the sheep gate is mentioned again. And so the full circle of Jerusalem's wall is being rebuilt. Attention is made to every section. But now the record has been made, the official record, and then we get more of the story in chapter 4. What happened when they were rebuilding the wall? How did it go? Chapter 4, we read out before, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time, so let's get into it together. And it's no surprise when we hit chapter 4 that we, things get worse. Do you remember the end of chapter 2? We were briefly introduced to Judah's enemies, to the guys with weird names, Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab. 
And we get to meet them properly in this chapter, and they're not very nice people. So read verse 1 with me. Chapter 4. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria. And he said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Sanballat, he seems to be the one in charge around here, the leader of the pack. And so he gathers the powerful leaders of the surrounding nations. They meet at Samaria, just north of of Judah. And the thing about powerful people is they are threatened by people who stick their head above the rest. And so they feel threatened by Nehemiah, don't they? They like being the powerful ones of the region. They like having Judah under their thumb. And so this work on the walls, well, that's an affront, isn't it? And so Sam Ballot, he takes the lead, he mocks Judah, he fires off these insulting questions. What do they think they're doing? Are they going to get anything done? Can they achieve anything? And in verse 3, Tobiah, he thinks he's a pretty smart guy, he's pretty clever. He joins in, he says, this wall is so pathetic that if a little fox jumped on it, it would all come tumbling down. It's a very creative insult, Tobiah. But it doesn't feel good to be mocked, does it? How does it feel when you are mocked, especially for your faith? That sinking feeling is awful, isn't it? Well, it doesn't say how, but Nehemiah, he gets this news back in the land of Judah, back in Jerusalem. How does he feel about it? What does faithful Nehemiah do? Perhaps we can guess. He prays. So have a look at his prayer. Verse 4, listen, our God. For we are despised. Rightly, Nehemiah cries out to God who loves and cares for his people. God, please help because we, your people, are being mocked. But then he prays something that we can find confronting. So look again, verse 4. Make their insults return on their own heads. And let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover the guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight. Because they have provoked the builders. Nehemiah prays for curses upon their enemies. He calls God to punish their enemies in specific ways. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? How should we respond to this? Is this something we should imitate when we face enemies? Well, let's pause for a moment. We're going to pause from the story and we'll just make a few points about Nehemiah's cursing. First of all, Nehemiah is praying for God's righteous judgment. We need to think about that. God is the righteous judge. It is right for him to punish sin, especially sin against his chosen people. So in one sense, Nehemiah is just asking God to do what he has promised. Punish the wicked. Curse those who curse your people. But does Nehemiah go too far when he says, don't blot out their sin? That seems extreme, doesn't it? Well, no, I don't think Nehemiah is saying, even if they repent and turn to you, God, don't forgive them. I don't want you to. No, I think he's simply saying, hold them to account for their sin because they are not repentant, clearly. Don't let them get off scot-free because they are reviling against us, your people. They don't, they're not sorry. Secondly, 
Nehemiah, he's not taking personal revenge here, is he? It's not like Samballot comes and hits Nehemiah in the face, and in the heat of the moment, he gets in a fight and loses control. No, instead, he's praying. He's entrusting judgment to God and saying, God, may you please deal with them. But on top of that, and this is more, but on top of that, it's more than personal for Nehemiah. It's actually broader than that. Because he's responding not just to people who are opposing him, but people who are opposing God's people, God's work. Judah, they are God's chosen people, his special possession. And so the work that they're doing on the walls of Jerusalem, that's God's work. He had promised that he would establish them in the land, and this is part of it. And so Sanballat and his buddies, they're opposing God, opposing his people, opposing his work. And so Nehemiah, he, he has God's glory in mind, not personal revenge. But I think we still need to ask, how do we respond to this as Christians? Because we're not the, the, the nation of Israel uh, back in that time. Well, as Christians, we need to listen to our Lord, don't we? To Jesus and what he says about cursing and revenge. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6. He says, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul repeats Jesus' words, bless, do not curse. It's clear, isn't it? Do not take personal vengeance. Do not retaliate personally to those who wrong you. Turn the other cheek. And do not curse people. We should pray for those who harm us, that they too would come to know Jesus and have saving faith in him and for their sins to be paid for. But having said that, there is a place in God's word and in the Christian life for entrusting judgment to God. There's a place for praying that he would judge those who intentionally oppose him, who oppose his people and oppose his work in the world. There's a place for asking God to put a stop to the great evils of our world or to false teachers who are leading people away from the truth of Jesus. So Paul says, look uh, in Galatians 1, about false teachers. He says, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received from us, Paul says, a curse be on him. May he be condemned by God. Or in Revelation 6, the martyrs, those who have died for their faith and are in heaven, they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood? From those who live on the earth. There is a place for praying that God would put a stop to those who do great evil. That he would oppose, that those who oppose people, God's people and God's work would be punished. But it should never be an excuse for personal revenge, for retaliation against anyone. No, instead, Jesus is our example in this. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. There's so much more that could be said about this topic. And if you want to read more about it in the scriptures, then write on your feedback slip and let me know and I can send you some more scriptures. But now, let's get back to the story. Because as well as pray, 
what does Nehemiah do? Look at verse 6. What happens next? It says, So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had the will to keep working. Faithful Nehemiah, he is yet again a man of prayer and action. And with God's strength and with Nehemiah leading them, the people of Judah, they get on with the job. Despite their enemies mocking, they push past the fear of men. Praise God. But, yet again, things take a turn for the worse. The opposition increases. The mocking turns to plotting. So have a look at verse 7. We'll look at the second part of the passage together. When Samballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and Ammonites, the Ashdodites, when they heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing, and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious again. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. It's bad enough when you're mocked for your faith, isn't it? How much worse is it when you are plotted against, when people try to harm you? I'm not sure if you've experienced that before. But for Judah, the threat of war was in the air. As literally all the nations around north, south, east, and west They've joined forces and plan to attack Jerusalem and stop the work. Imagine for a moment that tomorrow all of us woke up and on the news or in the papers or on your phone, it came up and said, all the surrounding nations around Australia have been secretly plotting to come and attack us and soon. Wouldn't that scare the pants off a lot of us? Wouldn't that be frightening? Well, here, Judah gets the news. They hear it. Nehemiah hears the news, as is in the land of Judah. And how do they respond? Well, in a few ways. If you look at verse 10, they they write a little ditty, a little rhyme to say, we're not going to get anything done. It's hopeless. The situation is dire. And then the enemies, they continue to mock in verse 11, in verse 12. uh, Those in Judah's towns outside of Jerusalem, they're killing the morale. They're killing the vibe. They keep saying, they're coming for us. They're going to kill us. But what does Nehemiah do? Who can guess? We can all guess, I think. He prays and he takes action. Verse 9, so we, Nehemiah, the nation of Judah, we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. God's people pray. It's an expression of our trust in the God who is sovereign over all things. When we are powerless, which is often, he is powerful. And he is able to do anything, even the impossible. So we can learn a lot from Nehemiah, can't we? But especially from his prayerfulness. From his readiness to pray at every time a situation presents itself. Depending on God in all things. But Nehemiah also acts. He's a man of action. He gets stuff done. He sets up a guard around the clock. Verse 13, he gives the people weapons and shields and, and, more, and armor, and he sends people to the weakest parts of the wall to protect those parts. In verse 14, he stands up. He rallies the people. Look there, verse 14. Don't be afraid of them, he says. How do they do that? Well, they need to remember. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. 
It's a bit of a brave heart moment, if you can picture it. I'm not going to do the accent as much as you might like me to, but it's this powerful moment, isn't it? But it's what he says that's really important. Remember the Lord. Does, it, does anyone remember that Colin Buchanan song? Remember the Lord. Thank you. Remember that he is in control. Yeah. Thank you for humoring me in that. Uh, it's such a great song, isn't it? Such a great song for our kids and in our, in our kids' ministries. But it's also good for us, isn't it? I remember singing it in primary school and taking courage from it. And Nehemiah says, remember. Remember the Lord. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. Remember who he is. He's the God and creator of the whole earth. He's the holy judge of the earth. Remember his awe-inspiring work. Remember he brought our people out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. He placed us in the promised land. And he brought us back from exile and re-established us in that land yet again. He gave us his promises, his word, his blessing. Pharaoh, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Cyrus the Great, none of them could stand up to Yahweh. Remember the Lord. Don't be afraid of Sanballat, of Tobiah, of Geshem, of the nations of mere men. Remember the Lord, Nehemiah says. So the same goes for us when we fear men, when we fear people. What does King David say? Psalm 118, the Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And he faced a lot of opposition from men, didn't he? And what does Paul say? Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? We might not be called to fight like Judah against physical enemies, but we are called to fight temptation and sin and the devil, aren't we? And we don't have the promise that our enemies, whether people or otherwise, that we'll be saved from harm every time. But we do have the promise that whatever people do to us and whatever attack comes from Satan, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can steal our eternal life. No one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. So remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and don't fear man. So Nehemiah prays and he acts. He trusts in the Lord and he takes action. And so what do his enemies do? And what does God do? Well, let's get into the last part of the passage together. Uh, look at verse 15 with me. When our enemies had heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. The enemies started by mocking. Then they plotted to attack, but God... God frustrated their plans. How does God frustrate their plans? Well, he does it through the faithful prayer and action of Nehemiah, of the people of Judah. While Judah worked hard on the wall, they put up full-scale defenses with Nehemiah leading them. And so all of a sudden, the enemies, well, they're a little bit scared now. We don't want to fight them now. They've put up their defenses. They back off. And the work on the wall, God's work, continues. Nehemiah's plan, his leadership was so good, so impressive, the enemies give up. They don't even bother to attack. And so Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, where are your big words now? 
It's as if Nehemiah says, where are your big plans to overthrow us? But Nehemiah, he gives the glory to God, doesn't he? Yes, he was faithful. Yes, he was a wise governor. But he says God frustrated their plans. It was God at work through his people, answering their prayers, enabling them to take action and continue the work on the wall. God frustrates the enemy's plans. And over the rest of the passage, if you look from verse 16 on, it tells us how Nehemiah, he keeps up those defenses until the walls are finished. The workers are armed and ready. There are armed guards stationed day and night. The trumpet is ready to blow at a moment's notice and gather people together if there was an attack. We get the picture that they are ready, ready to fight, and they are ready to continue the work, relying on God. And so we'll see in coming weeks how Nehemiah and the people of Judah continue to go. But it's worth uh, bringing it together now for us here today. Because like I said before, we, we are not the nation of Israel, are we? Their work, what was it? It was to seek the good of God's city, Jerusalem, so that God's people would be preserved and so they would prosper and so that God's glory would be seen in the world through them and they would bless the world. Our work as God's people is not to rebuild a temple, it's not to rebuild Jerusalem's walls or any holy place or building. No, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus has come and he has brought in a new era, a new time with a focus not on the earthly Jerusalem, but on the heavenly Jerusalem. And so instead, in one sense, God's work for us, our work is for the new Jerusalem, God's heavenly city, which Christ will bring when he returns and God dwells with his people. God's work is about what? Working for the new Jerusalem. It's getting on with the work of proclaiming Jesus so that the new Jerusalem can be full of people who have come to faith in him. Growing disciples so that we persevere in Christ and stand there on the last day, welcomed in to God's city, his new creation. And so that's why we want to pray diligently for our missionaries, isn't it? That's why we want to give to see them go out into the harvest field. That's why we want to support and pray for one another, each one of us, when we face opportunities to share Christ with others. It's why we need to love one another, share our struggles, build one another up, encourage one another, point each other to Christ so that we persevere. And as we work in our jobs and in our studies and as we go about the rest of our life, as we rest, as we pray, as we do church, all of it, all of it is to have that focus, that goal. Seek first God's kingdom. Reach the lost and build up Jesus' church. But just like in Nehemiah's day, sometimes God's work requires a fight. Not a physical fight, hopefully, <laughs> like for Judah, but a fight for truth. And so, when opposition comes to God's people and comes against God's work, people will attack God's church, people will malign and distort God's good word, People will try to silence the gospel. That's what's happening in Australia, isn't it? We need to fight, don't we? It requires women and men to stand up against the lies of the world and point to Christ 
as Savior and King. It requires faithful believers who know God's word to speak the truth when there are false teachers leading people away from Christ. And so will we, each one of us, will we stand and fight when the opportunity presents itself? And will we take our place and play our part in God's wonderful work in this world? I pray we will. We must. And in one sense, that's the work that God has called us to be involved in, proclaiming Jesus, growing disciples, fighting for truth, fighting for the gospel so that the new Jerusalem will be full and God will be glorified. But in another sense, if we look at it more broadly, and even at an individual level, God's work is all of our life, isn't it? All of our life lived in service of Him. It's about being armed and ready for serving Jesus, who loves us and gave his life for us. I hope that while you were reading the passage, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but I was reading this week, I thought of the words of Ephesians 6, the language, it's so similar. Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. So turn there now, we're going to look at Ephesians 6 to finish our time together. Ephesians 6, just as Nehemiah and Judah were armed and ready to fight, to do God's work, Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about our armor, about us being ready and armed. I wonder if Paul had Nehemiah in his mind when he wrote this uh, hundreds of years later. Who knows? Ephesians 6, we're going to start at verse 11. Paul says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens, Satan and his demons. So this is why you must take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. And just like Nehemiah, our friend, Paul says, pray. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with every prayer and request. And stay alert in it with all perseverance, making intercession for all the saints. Powerful words, aren't they? We don't have, have time to unpack their wonder right now. But Paul's message, his, his big idea is clear, isn't it? As Christians, our work is to know the gospel of grace and to live in light of it. That's our work. That's our fight. Day by day, believing in Jesus and living for him, whatever opposition comes our way. And our armor, our weapons, they're the truths of the gospel. They're God's word. It's God's truth, his his righteousness, the gospel, our faith, and our knowledge of salvation. They are the weapons that we use to fight what comes against us. They are the things we need to be ready for anything that our enemies might throw at us. So Paul says, put on the armor. Take up your weapons. Pray and act like Nehemiah. And at the end of the day, our enemies, whether it's actual people or whether it's sin or death 
of the devil, none of them, none of them will be able to defeat us. Even if they harm us, even if they kill us, nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. He is able to keep us and we have the armor that he has provided. The gospel of grace, the weapons of God's word to fight our spiritual battle and persevere. And we do this knowing there will be opposition. Our enemies will mock us, maybe even plot against us. But God will, no, he has disarmed them through the cross of Christ, through his resurrection, through his spirit in us, through his promises. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. God has frustrated our enemy's plans. So let's pray and act. Let's get on with God's work in our world, whatever comes our way. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you again for the example of Nehemiah. We praise you for his faithfulness, for his prayerfulness, for his willingness to act. We thank you for the wisdom that you gave him and that you helped him to persevere and push through the fear of men. Father, give us the same resolve as Nehemiah and help us to look to our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to know the gospel of grace. Help us to put on the armor that he provides, faith, hope, righteousness, so that we might be able to fight in the evil day. And Lord, please take and use us to do your work in the world, living for you, but also proclaiming Jesus, that your new Jerusalem, your eternal kingdom, would be full of those you have called. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.